Welcome to Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth, and this is a new series from Lacuna magazine, exploring the ideas of some of the most interesting thinkers who are connected to the environment. It seems that when you engage with what's happening with the climate, whether that's as an activist, a policymaker, or just someone reading about it and living in it, things can often feel terribly urgent. The time to step back and make space for wider thoughts and ideas feels like a frivolous luxury. I've definitely thought like that. But I want to make space here, just for an hour or so, to do that. To get away from the campaigns and the alarming statistics. To stop for a moment and speak with people who are thinking about the best way to orientate ourselves in this damaged world. There might be something useful in it. At the very least, it'll be a bit of a breather. This is Spoken Earth. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Anna Lohenhaupt Singh, a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and author of several books, most recently, The Mushroom at the End of the World. I do want to, to show viewers how fungi, among other things, could tell us a story. I first came across Anna's work because everyone was recommending her book to me. I've had a long-term interest in picking mushrooms, and Uli, who produces the show, used to trade mushrooms at London's markets. But suddenly it seems that everyone in the activist world, the book world, the art world, was talking about this book, The Mushroom at the End of the World, a book that on the face of it is about the Matsutake mushroom. But the subtitle, On the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins, suggests something more than that. Matsutake is traded as a luxury product for vast sums in Japan, but refuses to be cultivated. Instead, it thrives best where old-growth forest has been logged out. Anna explores in particular one such place, the Pacific Northwest, where she finds a vibrant cash economy, the mushroom pickers a diverse bunch of mostly Asian immigrants, many of them former jungle fighters from wars on their home turf, all of them there for complicated reasons. The thriving of new life in destroyed landscapes, the precarity of people's lives and of economies, the intermingling of different peoples and ecosystems is not unusual, she suggests but is actually our world, if we are only able to see it. By looking at the global supply chain of the Matsutake, she is able to explore much of how we have learned to live in a world that has been ravaged, both economically and environmentally. It is not a book about hope. It is not a book about despair either. It is a book about opening our eyes and learning how to see, and our guide in that is the very earthy, very grounded, very sensuous Matsutake. I began by asking Anna what her relationship was to the outdoors as she was growing up. I think uh, the outdoors was my sense of freedom of movement and where I could best find myself. So I've always been a person who loves to walk, even today, if I want to write something. If I'm stuck behind a desk, I won't be able to write it at all. Mm -hmm. I have to walk. If necessary, I'll pace around a small room, but I'd much rather be outside in a forest in particular uh, and uh, walking around, sensing the world through all of my, through smell and uh, the feel of the air and all of those things. And that's what uh, makes me feel most alive. Mm -hmm. and, and it's almost the motion rather as, as much as the 
as much yes, as the being Yes, the outside. motion is really part of it, that the speed of walking in particular, while I also ride a bicycle and other things, uh, it's walking that's the speed in which I can notice the world around me and uh, pay attention to little details, stop and look or listen to something, and then um, continue making a path uh, in the way that other animals and plants and fungi do too. Mm -hmm. and, and mushrooms was a real finding long before this book that, okay. uh, that it's a way of, of, of noticing the world that's, that forces you to pay attention to some small details, even as you're also noticing the, the lay of the land, the trees, the light, the whole scene around you that partly because mushrooms are mainly not there. Uh, they're only there for a short season. Mm -hmm. So you start to know places in a really different way mm -hmm. when you look at mushrooms. So I had uh, developed a looking for mushrooms. When I first moved to Santa Cruz, California, I um, realized that there were a lot of mushrooms there and came to know that place as my place through looking for mushrooms. And did you come to mushrooms as a as a forager first or as an academic or as just a, as a human walking through the forest noticing? Or? Uh, as a forager and as a human walking through the forest, yeah. both. So, so both uh, appreciating um, the forest more because of all these amazing mushrooms, things that would change colors when you touch them, that would have strange smells, uh, that some of them, when you eat them, your whole body changes in terms of how the smells that come out of you uh, that have flavors and all kinds of ways of appealing to you. Uh, so eating was part of that mm -hmm. and finding ones that were really delicious. And it was not a research object at all at that mm -hmm. point. It was just a way of knowing a place, a way of uh, having some real joy in the forest that I came to that excitement where it's the mushroom season and you want to be the first one out there to find the boletes yeah. or whatever you're looking yeah. for. Uh, but it was not something I was going to study. I stumbled into this because uh, David Aurora, uh, mycologist and mushroom hunter who uh, spent much of his life in Santa Cruz, was leading a foraging trip and I just saw him when I was out myself foraging and wanted to get to know him and, and we had coffee together and he told me about Matsutake which I had never heard of before and it was so intriguing that I decided to go up and take a look because while Oregon's far it's not that far and uh, when I got there I was overwhelmed by the scene there of Southeast Asian pickers of uh, this strange, dry forest uh, that where you wouldn't think anything would grow at all, and yet had these fruitful mushrooms of the foresters uh, trying very hard to figure out what to do with this ruined landscape, that all of these components came together for me as about as exciting a place to spend some time as mm. I've known. And I think that really comes through in the book that it doesn't feel like an like it is on on one hand an academic text, but it feels so sort of rooted in the earth and in your experience. And that that really feels what's what's driving it. 
I think. Well, it was really true. It was a labor of love in every sense yeah. in that um, the only way that I get to do research like that in my job is to take a leave without salary. But I did it with gusto because I couldn't wait to have a chance to live in the forest and uh, hang out with these mushroom pickers who were showing me so much about their histories, about the history of the forest, about these creatures, the fungi that were growing up there together with the trees. So perhaps you can just talk a little bit to give a kind of framework for the for the conversation about the Matsutake, about these forests that, that they're that they're starting to thrive in, in these in these ruined landscapes. So Matsutake grows in many places around the northern hemisphere and in fact uh, when I use that term it's uh, there are several species of Matsutake, but they're very closely related. And what they have in common is this very uh, pungent odor that some people love and other people don't yeah. love. So Matsutake is a kind of cover term for all the mushrooms that get sold in the trade as Matsutake. Uh, and they all are what we call mycorrhizal mushrooms, which means they form a mutualist attachment with the roots of trees and they forage for the trees and the trees give them their carbohydrate meals. And it's that coming together that allows the mushrooms and the trees both to thrive. And in particular, Matsutake is a, it thrives in these rather difficult places where there aren't a lot of nutrients, where there isn't thick organic soils, but rather sand or uh, eroded uh, soils that have lost their organic materials, that in those kinds of places, trees are able to grow in part because fungi like Matsutake are doing all this work for them of gathering water and nutrients uh, from quite far places and bringing them to the roots that make th trees thrive there. In Oregon, back at the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of logging was done of ponderosa pines. Oregon, that part of Oregon became one of the centers of the U.S. logging industry. And when they logged the pines, without the fire regime that Native Americans had brought there, which were these small, frequent fires, um, the ponderosa did not do well. Instead, a different pine, a lodgepole pine, grew up. And when the U.S. Forest Service took it over, they suppressed fire. So these lodgepoles, which are extremely flammable, will just go up under any circumstance. They lived for a long time. And that was the situation where all these Matsutake came up in this former logging paradise that's now a kind of second-rate logging place because it has nothing but these much smaller and less desirable lodgepoles. And they also come up thick and uh, it's, it's really doesn't even feel like soil. It's, it's a pumice from volcanoes. It scratches your hands if you try and put your, into it. So the amount of organic material is very low. And so matsutake is one of the few things that can make trees grow mm -hmm. in this difficult place. There's one phrase you used that really stood out for me, that it's not wilderness and not civilization either. Yes, I think that's right. That it, Yes, it does not feel like 
the great trees that you might find in a national park mm. somewhere. It doesn't feel that way at all. It's often quite brushy, and uh, the trees are often small and and full of snags and impenetrable in some cases. There's also areas of sand and mistletoe and uh, rot diseases and stuff, so it's not that the trees are all incredibly healthy in this place and extends uh, quite far in every direction. So there's a sense of losing your mooring when you go into this space. You're listening to Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth, and I'm in conversation today with Anna Lohenhut Singh, talking about her book, The Mushroom at the End of the World. You write a lot about the pickers, about their diverse backgrounds, and alongside the white pickers and the Native American pickers, there are a lot of Southeast Asian pickers who have emigrated to the US. You write about how the mushroom camps in Oregon appear almost identical to migrant camps you've seen in Laos and Cambodia. A lot of these people are used to transients. In many ways, it's another sort of flourishing in ruins because they've come from cultures that have been very much on the move because of wars and shifting boundaries and frontiers. And they have those experiences of having lived in jungles previously and in many instances of having learned how to live in jungles because of jungle fighting. And that's prepared them for the sort of work that they're doing now. Right. And there were ways that I learned from them and got better. Yeah. Uh, for example, and I forget whether I mentioned this in the book, uh, learning a new appreciation of trash. That trash, if it's it, it's not great, the, the hunters who are mainly... Uh, Americans of European origin come in for a part of the year and they leave mounds of trash, like beer cans piled up to the sky. The Southeast Asian pickers leave a little cigarette packet, an aluminum foil, lunch wrapping, just one thing here and one thing there. And that that way of scattering trash, which the Forest Service and other people hate, but it's a kind of trail. Right. And I was so grateful on many occasions once I learned to follow the trash because even when the trees are all confusing, you know that piece of trash. You know you've been here before. Mm -hmm. Makes me think of Hansel and Gretel. Yes, that's right. Yeah. that's right. And so you're a part of the project of the book is finding the creatures, the livelihoods, the, the interactions, the entanglements that appear in places like this. Let me say, I was drawn in to the world of mushroom picking in the forest in many ways. So I found myself wanting to learn about the lives of the mushroom pickers and the lives of the mushrooms and the forest that grew up together. So I'm trying to work on both of those at the same time, as they equally gave me a sense of precarious lives in our times. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that really stuck out for me in this is that it's there's there's, there's this uh, protest that's been happening in London the past couple of weeks called Extinction Rebellion, uh, which is raising awareness of the extinction of biodiversity at the moment. And ah. but th there's a part in the book where you talk about how both uh, sort of modernist 
projects and the protests against them are both labouring under this idea of progression and and most environmental movements I can think of seem to be looking backwards rather than forwards we're trying to reclaim and you don't do that you you sit in the present and you and you look at and what we have now and that that feels almost very hard to get my head around well I think I'm, I'm not a believer that everything goes and that I believe there's a big difference between a parking lot and a forest however brushy and weedy that forest it makes a huge difference and I do think we should protect what one of my colleagues calls Holocene fragments, that is, those spaces where a lot of different species can work together with very old, often evolutionary articulations that allow interspecies interactions. I think we got to protect those against the kind of Anthropocene projects that uh, rip apart the ability of humans and other species to be occupying the same spaces. So I do think we have to protect some of those things. But uh, I, mean, I understand that the book is very much a call for, for protection. I'm not saying it's not uh -huh. about that. But I think the certain phrases that you use, which seem almost heretical, there's a point where you say uh, something like, it, it pains me to say this, but there might not be a collective happy ending. Oh. And and another point where you talk about we have to learn to live in the the, the ecological yes. and environment uh, right. economic ruins that we've created. Right. There's a sort of there's a real honesty uh, r rather than yes. rather than a kind of nostalgia that I feel that a lot of environmental conversations have. There's a real acceptance about the word you use, noticing where we are, and then thinking about how we think about that. I was trying to aim for what you're calling honesty, that is, the ability to describe what's around us rather than to project either imagined great futures or imagined great pasts. I was trying for that, and that put me in a place that I saw as neither optimistic nor uh, giving up. Many people who've read the book want, have tried to assimilate the book into an optimism. That is, everything's going to be okay hmm. because there's some things that are going to survive. And that's worried me that I didn't think of it as optimistic in that way, that business usual just fine because we still haven't run out of mudstocking mushrooms. Uh, so indeed, that reaction to the book that... So many people came up to me and said, thank you for giving us hope. And I thought, I, I'm not giving hope. Actually, that sentence that you said is there may not be a collective happy ending is not hope. It's a kind of trying for that description of where we are mm. with all of its lack of hope, in fact. I mean, I thought that's a pretty depressing statement. There may not be a collective happy ending. So what I've done since the book is to try and aim for that same honesty of description about some of the terrible things that are happening around us. I feel like you're very explicit in the book. I, th I, I think uh -huh. there's one point where you say hope is part is, is one of the objects of, of progress along yes. with democracy. And yes. you, I feel like you're quite explicit that this is... But isn't it interesting that so many people want to assimilate to this find hope. 
into an agenda mm. of hope that's so strong that I started to worry that it was a kind of drowning out of the bad news around us. Yeah, and I think there is a desperation here. And I think even me in doing these interviews, probably part, I realised thinking about this last night, in some way I'm probably waiting to speak to the person that's going to tell me it's all going to be okay. Uh, I did a talk in a bookshop the other night and someone asked me quite a long complicated question about salmon and then at the end they said well basically it's a paraphrase can you just tell me is there hope or not uh but yes, then on the flip side that's the kind of thing that i get asked <laughs> on the flip side of that there's this kind of sort of cynical glee that people get when they think that we're all fucked and there's nothing we can yes, do yes that's right and it goes into these apocalypse it, scenarios in which then well let's just shoot all our neighbors and it's walking that tightrope between the two which seems to be a maintaining of the present that that you're trying that to is do, what i'm it's trying very easy to that's, slip off that one way that's or the other. right because it is a tightrope and even with the new work about these terrible things uh, i'm trying to describe them and to hold both myself and my readers into the details rather than to just slide down that chute when there's nothing left to do except, yes, a gleeful mm. acceptance that this is the end. Mm. So if you can hold into that middle place where we're looking both at what's uh, coming up in these ruined places and what's not coming up in those ruined places, that's where I'm trying to bring the imagination. And I wonder, I suppose, why we're so bad at staying in that place. I've been spending a lot of time in Alaska with indigenous people the last couple of years. And in some ways, they're very good at practicing the sorts of things that you're writing about, both mm -hmm. in terms of the sort of indigenous concept of science, which is very different from Western science. It's much more about noticing and it's much more empirical in a very sort of grounded sense than, than Western science. And in some ways, it feels like you're kind of doing so much work here to get back to what we've yes. known all along you know yes. but but we're so why why are we so divorced from that why is it so hard to get back to something that feels in some ways so instinctive i think a lot of the work of the powerful movements of the 20th century was to separate us from that to bring us into these progress agendas in which we stopped we stopped paying attention to so much that was going on because we had set this we as some kind of public in the, within these uh, dreams, uh, that we'd set our, our hopes in something that was going to come. And so we didn't have to notice anything that was going around us because it was going to get better. And that disallowed an engagement with the present in some way that we were so stuck in the in this imagined future, not the real future, but the imagined future, that we stopped paying attention to the kinds of kinship we had with the world around us, all the plants and animals and fungi. I, I've learned a lot from the uh, Satoyama enthusiasts in Japan that I write about in the book that is... Do you want to explain a yes, what that means? Yes, so uh, a set of volunteers, scientists, activists, 
uh, a group of people who want to restore a particular kind of woodland formation in Japan, and that's called the Satoyama. It's a village forest, and it's a forest in which humans are a part of it rather than excluded from it, uh, and in which human work in the forest um, brings both humans and the forest to life, as people see it there, that this is the forest that was once used for firewood, for making charcoal, for gathering um, what they call mountain vegetables, that's uh, fruits and nuts and mushrooms. And so this was a well-used forest. They also raked a lot of uh, leaves and needles from it for green manure for the farms that uh, in Japanese traditional farming, unlike European farming, didn't use animal manure. Instead, it was all green manure. And so they pulled uh, this from the forests to uh, put on the fields. In the process, they got very specific kinds of forests that, for example, had uh, quite a lot of Japanese red pine and in which uh, particular kinds of deciduous oaks were maintained over the many years as they were coppiced and pollarded. And so they, they cut wood from them, but they'd grow back. And the, these distinctive kinds of woods also produced a lot of matsutake. But then in the 1950s, when Japan switched to fossil fuels, uh, they stopped pulling this green manure out of the forest. They stopped getting firewood and charcoal. And um, uh, these forests started to change. They got thick and brushy, and a whole different set of species came in uh, that, the, again, this impenetrable kind of brush took over. Also, plantation tree plantations were put on top of them with a particular Japanese evergreens that shaded out this kind of forest formation and didn't allow the kind of life that the Satyama forest had in it. So now these volunteers go out to the forest and try and create just this set of effects that peasant farming had for many, many years. And the volunteers are enthusiastic about this as a project of teaching themselves to be part of the forest in a particular kind of way, not as maybe many North Americans might do it by just kind of contemplation and removal, but by inserting themselves through work, uh, through raking, through um, trying to reintroduce pollarding and coppice into the forest, that these techniques, through encouraging pines to come back, that these techniques bring, they argue, make them more human, even as they make the forests have a particular kind of liveliness in terms of birds and small animals, uh, mushrooms, uh, plants, that they think this, which again, you could call a Holocene kind of arrangement between humans and woodlands. Uh, they want to argue that that's a way of appreciating how humans and woodlands work together. So I was telling that story because it's related to this living in the present uh, theme that we were on before, that rather than separating humans from uh, the rest of the natural world, they want to bring through work to bring us back into the same spaces. Which is not just living in a concrete jungle, but it's also this fetishization of the wilderness, which is that 
people do not belong in in, yes. in, in wild spaces. I, th I think that's true, but I'll admit learning about the Satyama made me more sympathetic to wilderness dreams than I had before, because I might have said what you just said, but now I think nor the wilderness is the North American Satyama. That is, that ideal, that cultural dream that might be worth working for, that if you imagine it as an object of work and human love, as a, merely something that's set aside, that it takes work to hmm. create these wilderness spaces. And sometimes that's the work of removing roads or uh, trying to keep legislation that would protect some areas. And that that's uh, some of the work. And, and also, because wilderness has very particular definitions in terms of forest management, it's uh, involving certain kinds of uh, forest practices that you can do and not do in it, that all of that might be an equivalent of the Satoyama in North America and therefore worth paying attention to even if there's some definitional pieces that might have to be reworked a little bit to recognize the role of humans in making and nurturing wilderness. Mm -hmm. But rather than dumping wilderness, as I think so many critics have argued for, it makes me want to revitalize wilderness as a, as a concept, as an aspiration for involving uh, people in woodland. This is Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth, and today I'm in conversation with Anna Lohenhart Singh. Something else that I feel drags us out of this present when we're trying to find... Uh, it's even hard to know what the right language is. I was going to say solutions to the environmental crisis, which is not really correct, but there's been two reports in the last month, one that we only have 12 years, I believe, in order to fix climate change, and the other that we've lost 60% of our biodiversity since 1970. And it feels like there's a, such a desperation that comes with these, with these reports that we don't have time to be noticing. We don't have time to be doing the work we need to do on ourselves. I, I wonder how, how you respond to, to things like this. Well, I'm, I'm actually grateful for those sets of scientists who are trying to ring warning bells, because I see they're doing a particular kind of work of mobilization and alarming, and particularly as uh, an American right now, where even the mild environmental protections we had are being taken away every single day from clean water to endangered species to all of those things. So we're losing that, that I'm grateful that these alarm bells are going off. But I think that to bring into being the kinds of programs that the alarm bells make us want to think about, we can't do without the noticing that all of those effects that they're talking about are the overlap among the many small problems that we're having, that we're making, and that if you can't notice all those small problems, uh, you can't figure out what the big picture is. That the point of this feral atlas that I'm working on right now is to tell stories of the many kinds of effects from 
the overproduction of carbon dioxide. Okay, that's one thing, but now then we have marine plastics, then we have particular kinds of uh, species that are killing other species through, through their uh, you know, new pathogens coming out. Uh, all of these uh, overlaid on top of each other are the Anthropocene. So only by noticing, it seems to me, can we get a sense of what these dynamics are, how they're forming, that there is no way to address it. So, so those alarm bells, it seems to me, are intended to make people think that just sitting back is not enough. Mm-hmm. But then when you want to address anything, you've got to address it in relation to the particular problems that you're having. And I, I think it's a terrible mistake to think as so many policymakers do that you're just going to push a particular button, reset, and then we're going to go get rid of all those things. You know, those are those big technological dreams, which themselves are going to have so many feral effects that they're probably worse than not even doing those things. So if they want to address the Anthropocene, it's got to be addressed from the places it emerges, that you want to address radioactivity, well, you're going to have to look at the landscapes that have been contaminated by radioactivity. And that's a matter of noticing that you have to pay attention to what's going on there and how radioactivity is being distributed around the world. We, the Feral Atlas has entries by many different contributors, and one is a set of uh, Japanese scientists and volunteers who are looking at what they did to the uh, forests that were so contaminated by the Fukushima um, disaster that they were turned into wood chips. What happened to those wood chips? They were taken by developers and put into projects around Japan. So now these volunteers have to go around Japan and and figure out where these radioactive wood chips have been used to, you know, create the bank, refix the banks of rivers and other things that they've spread them around. So this is a beautiful example to me of the arts of noticing where volunteers are learning how to measure the radioactivity in their own parks and urban and rural spaces in order to figure out how did they just distribute all that radioactivity to places where it really didn't belong. That's astonishing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you want to hear a story from something that's more positive for a minute? I think everyone would, yeah. Okay, I'll try. Because I've been doing this little... You know, the whole time that I worked on this Matsutake project, I took for granted all those things I was reading about the root uh, mycelia combinations that we call mycorrhiza underground. I didn't think that it was possible to go look at them. In the last couple of years uh, doing this work in Denmark, we developed a little collaborative field site that's the we of the project that I was working with in a former brown coal mine in the middle of Jutland and it's uh, heaps of sand uh, that were talk about a ruin that they just dug up these giant holes in the ground and then abandoned them as heaps of sand and the water table's very high so they became these quite acid lakes and so it's a kind of strange I don't know what you call it 
uh, again, neither wilderness nor civilization. Mm -hmm. It's an abandoned mine site, uh, some of which had trees planted on it and some things are just springing up on their own. In that context, in part because of the sand, I tried looking underground and I realized, I realized just how accessible uh, the underground world is. It's really very superficially under the soil and you find these roots and the mycorrhiza are perfectly visible with the naked eye and they have colors and shapes and uh, arrangements that you can appreciate as an ordinary person without a microscope, although having a microscope is also great because you can see them more closely. I started to get to know them and I spent a lot of time, I, I think I introduced this metaphor of the underground city in the book, but now I'm getting to know this underground city mm -hmm. and it's the most fascinating thing. It's, it's a whole world that was open to me that I hadn't known about. And so getting to know how roots and mycorrhiza work together has been completely fascinating that as in the Matsutake book, this is a case of living in the ruins, that in these sand piles that were left by the mining, and the most exciting thing of all was to see, you'd pull out little pieces of brown coal or uh, stuck all through the stand from, you know, because this is just what they shoveled out in many cases with individual people shoveling and then later with machines also, but there's, there's brown coal interlaced with the sand everywhere. There's no organic material at all in this sand. It's just very uh, nutrient difficult for plants. Those pieces of brown coal, the little fragments, are one species of mushroom uh, wraps around it like a spider web around it and you can see it's getting some kind of water or nutrients that are gathering in this somewhat porous brown coal. Another kind finds little cracks and gets inside it and you split open a piece of brown coal and inside there's a nest of mycelium uh, where that fungus is getting the stored uh, water and nutrients out of this brown coal. To me, it was so exciting to see how this living in ruins thing was working under the soil where uh, these combinations of roots and fungi were uh, gathering water and nutrients to make life grow where you might not expect it at all. Almost the kind of the beginning of a geological process of how soil was formed. Yes, exactly, exactly. So you saw that the one that was getting inside the, um, the brown coal, uh, splitting it, it slowly into layers, softening it up because the water is really holding on to there. Yes, you could see the, the slow production of soils. I was just entranced. I'll tell you, so that second one, the one that gets inside the brown coal, we call dead man's foot because it just looks like a dead stump that comes out uh, from uh, the, under the ground. And it's easy to follow because the mycelium is bright yellow, a kind of chrome yellow. Uh -huh. And so you can follow the yellow. And if you break open this uh, piece of brown coal, you see this yellow inside it. And 
couldn't have been more thrilled be tracking these little threads of yellow across underground uh, in, through the brown coal formations, because you'd find the brown coal formations and that's where the yellow was. So uh, it was just that sense of wonder in life that's there in acid sand, you know, where you wouldn't expect things to grow. Yeah, if we're able to look and to yes, notice. Yes, that's right, yeah. that's right. I feel so animated listening to you tell this story about mushrooms and, and, and mycelia, but we're very, we're very bad in general, aren't we, about, about hearing stories that don't have humans as the, as the central yes. characters. Yes, yes. Why? Why? I don't know, and I see, sometimes when I talk, uh, my audi audience members say, well, where are the people? And I thought first, um, well, this is all about people. I mean, who made those mines and dug up the sand yep. and left it th that way? But I do see that part of my goal is to create that yellow mycelia as a protagonist. I mm. want that yellow mycelia to be telling a story of going through the sand and finding a piece of brown coal and turning that brown coal into something that could make life. Um, that I do want to to show viewers how fungi, among other things, could tell us a story. It's a challenge how to do this and not turn off people who are just used to humans. Mm. I went to the meetings for American anthropologists that were held a few weeks ago in California, and I'm quite a few colleagues have started to say that anybody who studies non-humans is ignoring humans, that they've taken offense. And so it means there's more work to do. It means it's a challenge to look forward. Yeah, that seems incredibly... Yes. <laughs> I don't know why. It feels almost like sort of criticisms as feminism that men are starting to feel sidelined. Yes, well, I think that's exactly it. That when people first brought up race... And lots of people said, oh, well, you obviously think class is unimportant. When we brought up gender, they said, well, obviously think race is unimportant. <laughs> and so that each time when you add anything, there's somebody that's going to object. <laughs> mm -hmm. But still, it put forward the challenge of, of work that has to be done to hold on to human voices. And I think people want that in particular. It's not just that they want humans because all of these landscapes that I've been describing are full of humans as the makers of the infrastructures mm. and the landscapes themselves. But they want intimacy with humans who are going to talk directly to them. And so that has to that's the challenge is to hold on to that while also showing that landscape structure matters, that it's not a matter of individual intents to preserve or destroy that's making us in the dilemma that we're in right now, that it has to do with all of this infrastructural work that draws all of us in. Yeah. Lots of work yet to be done. Lots of work yet to be done. <laughs> You're listening to Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth, and today I'm talking with the Professor of Anthropology, Anna Lohan-Hutzing. 
I wanted to talk a bit about precarity, which okay. we've not really touched on yet. Yes. Um, there's a line that you write, precarity is that here and now in which pasts may not lead to futures. And that jumped out to me. I was reading a book by John Berger um, sort of around the same time I was reading yours, and he says about poverty, poverty is facing the hardest choices that lead to nothing. And yet I feel there's a difference between precarity and poverty, although they seem very close. Obviously, people that are living in poverty are living in precarious situations as yes. well. But I think you mean more than that, that there's a possibility in precarity as well. Yes, and poverty is a piece of a structure, I guess, where some people are taking all of the wealth and blocking others from access to it. While precarity is... And a position in relation to time where you can't, where there's no guaranteed futures. And so first, privileged people can be in a precarious situation too. Um, and that's part of the problem that we're living with now with by getting rid of standard employment situations that computer programmers and others with quite a few skills are also having to do these precarious labor kinds of contracts. Animals that are not poor in any sense can also have precarious um, situations. Precarity is one way of trying to describe that tight rope of staying with the present that we were talking about a little earlier. That you can't have hope in any absolute sense, like, well, of course, things are going to get better. But you're also not assured of the slide to ruin either. So you're in this presence of trying to hold on to that set of relations and possibilities that you've got around you, in which you can't just rely on your own resources Precarity is always a situation of dependence on others and also on things that you don't know how they're going to work out. So precarity is also an analytic framework for understanding the condition that most of us are in and perhaps to what was wrong with the fantasy in the 20th century that Precar that we were not precarious, mm. that we knew where we were going. And we were self-contained and yes. self-reliant yes. and had no need of nothing beyond right. what we'd chosen for right. ourselves. Right. And it's very easy to read your book and to think about uh, migration at the moment and, and, and the huge narrative of migration that we have and how you write about everything's created through contamination and bringing different situations together and that's how things have always happened and to contrast that with let's build a wall let's keep them out yes yes that's right uh, I think indeed uh, the dream of purity well among other things it's not going to work out <laughs> mm. say that mm. and that the the new drive for purification especially about humans is very frightening Mm. My thought was also that the flip side of that, this idea of a kind of utopian future, a ecologically utopian future, 
I think versions of that that I've I've seen described have always felt in one way quite inspiring, but also sort of deathly boring. Yeah, and, and I suppose reading your book made me think that perhaps the reason that utopia feels so boring is because it also feels contained and uncontaminated and yes and and not really yes. the sort of world that we truly like to live in because right. because we want to be vulnerable and precarious and, mm-hmm. and and all the rest of it i think uh what the the symposium yesterday was about uh is really relevant to what you're bringing up here that part of the reason that purification is impossible is that we're already mixed up in every way from the start that I don't think I have to spend too much time on the idea that races are constructs that have to do with particular European histories of classification that had everything to do with conquering the world, Um, but that the exciting news of our times is that species are also created out of interspecies relations so that most organisms can only come into their own through a set of interspecies relations. Mm -hmm. For example, with the bacteria that let us digest our food and, you know, make it possible to be alive, that the papers I listened to yesterday were all full of reports about becoming who you are through your interactions with other species. Mm-hmm. I wanted to tell you a story that I was told in the pub a couple of days ago. There's a guy <laughs> called John the Poacher who uh, who makes a living in East London by catching crayfish and, and foraging hops for local breweries and mushrooms is a big part of what mm-hmm. he does. And he was telling me that there's some fields in East London that he's gone to for years and he's always gone there for field mushrooms, but he's never found bluets there. And then recently, in the last couple of years, he started to see bluets. And he thinks the reason is because he's been foraging bluets in other parts of London. Oh. And the spores get on his clothes or like drop, you know through, possible. drop through his wicker basket. That's a fantastic and that, story. And that he's unintentionally farming almost and that these that these mushrooms are using him as a conduit for although he's foraging the mushrooms it's the mushrooms that are really benefiting from it and it seemed like such a good example of that interspecies relationship Mm -hmm. that you're that you're talking about you know some of the matsutake um, lovers in japan uh bring the wrapping paper from matsutake like you go to the market and just get the stuff that was lining the boxes and stuff of matsutake that, and they bring it out to the forest, and they put that wrapping paper in there in case there's some spores to try and, yes, nurture some more. And mm-hmm. it's also the general belief among mushroom pickers that the reason you should use an open wicker basket rather than a plastic bag or something like that, I mean, also to let the mushrooms breathe, but also because you're... Uh, scattering spores mm-hmm. with you through your wicker basket. So these very old ways of doing things really have have purpose. Right. Yeah. A cool story from one of the papers yesterday is that uh, they, you know, they found out that smell works. You have certain kind of receptors in your nose, and like a sweet smell or something will make some of them notice. But you, then they realize that you have these receptors in all these different organs in your body 
and they thought, well, why would you have, you know, smell receptors on your kidneys or in your lungs? But it turns out that all those bacteria in your body, which are 90% of your body are bacteria, and uh, they are making all these chemical byproducts, and those receptors on your kidney or your lungs are responding to them, and uh, through those smells, knowing what to do and how to conduct their business, that the communication between your bacteria and your human cells uh, accounts for so much of who we are and what we do in life. I think, I, I love it that it turns out to be smell that pervades us and is that system of interactions through which we become as individuals and as organisms. Which brings us right back to the Matsutake. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, so when I was writing about smell here, I hadn't thought about it as pervading all of my cells, but it's delightful to begin to think of it that way. <laughs> and it's such a hard thing to describe and to write about, but when yes. you write about, it feels so precise when you do it and when you discuss the, the autumn aroma, which is so wrapped up in nostalgia and thinking about the past, yes. but is also so connected to being out in the forest in the autumn and the real aliveness of, 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 of being there. And yes. And it's, it's almost one of the easiest things in the book to grasp because it's so visceral when you, when you connect to that smell and you know how it, how it makes you feel yourself. It's, and it's a very powerful way to bring in those bigger ideas that you're talking about, about that kind of mourning for the summer which has been lost, but also the excitement of living in this, yes. in the mess of autumn. Right, right. Because you do, think, the thing about smell is we've always known that it's more than just a little switch of turning on and off, that smell pervades us in a different sense of our experience and our history and our memories uh, are so tied to smells that a smell brings you into a trajectory of memory and that feature of smell already feels pervasive as part of your body, mm. your body's ability to be in the world. You've been listening to Spoken Earth, a Lacuna Magazine production. Edited and produced by Uli Matson, music by Uli Matson, performed along with Ben O'Connor and Amir Shoat. Next time, I'll be in conversation with Alistair McIntosh, the activist, writer and academic. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening.